I love the cooking. I also love the, I just love the camaraderie. I love, you know, working with people who I like. I like the adrenaline. I love, I still like a crazy Saturday night. I love that, like the rush and everybody working together really hard. And then, you know, sort of surviving in the end. It's like warriors that have, we've made it through to the other side together. I love making customers happy. It's, it's funny that still to this day, it's like when somebody tells me they had a great meal or they really loved it, or, you know, we always come back for our birthday or whatever it may be. It's just, it's really rewarding. flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 91 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest today is Chef Suzanne Gouin, one of the few women chefs who are changing the culinary landscape in America. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with American culinary leaders talking about their path to success, their challenges, and how their cultural heritage and upbringing influences their creative process. Please follow us on the platform where you listen to podcasts and on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Flavors Unknown. Chef Suzanne Gouin is a native from Los Angeles. She worked at Chipanis with Alice Walters. She opened with her partner, Caroline Stein Lucas in 1998 and AOC in 2002. She was awarded Best Chef by the James Beard Foundation in 2006. And in 2016, she was recognized as Outstanding Chef of the Year at the James Beard Foundation Award. In 2021, she received the Star Chef's Mentor Award. In this episode, she talks about the food concept at AOC and her new restaurants, Caracara and Caldo Verde, her close connection with local farmers, and using seasonal produce, her unique creative process, and a passion for bread and cheese. You can find the show notes of these episodes on our website at flavorsunknown.com. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm really excited to have you uh, on Flavors Unknown. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. You know, you are really one of the few women chefs. You know, we are changing the culinary landscape in the U.S. So it's it's really great, uh, you know, to have you on on Flavors Unknown. I have the chance to to dine twice. In fact, at AOC in West Hollywood in your beautiful courtyard there. So can you talk to us about AOC restaurant concept and like the different section that you have on the menu? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I opened my first restaurant actually called Luke in 1998. It was more of a traditional, you know, appetizer, main course, dessert restaurant. And we kind of, we were really busy right away, which was fantastic. But what we found was a lot of people in the neighborhood would just come to like sneak and steal a seat at the bar. And it, it sort of was this crew of people that developed like the, it was like the bar crowd. And they would end up, you know, just ordering one or two things and they would pass plates around and share. 
And Carolyn, my business partner and I, after, you know, we'd been open for three or four years and we had this little creative itch and we were like, well, we wanted to create something that was sort of like taking that idea of what was happening at the bar and making that into a whole restaurant. And um, yeah, so that was the idea. And it was the idea of a wine bar too. Like we really wanted to focus on wine. I really wanted to focus on cheese and charcuterie, but kind of just to break that system of appetizer, main course and dessert down into something where you're kind of ordering different plates and sharing and passing around and sort of this real kind of convivial community vibe. And it seems to be like very mainstream today because there's a lot of concept like this. But when you started it, it was like really new, correct? Yes. It's, it's funny. Actually, Carol and I laugh because when we go out to eat and people say, oh, so we recommend two to three plates per person and it's going to come <laughs> in a flow. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know. Because we were trying to figure out how to explain it to people. I mean, we were afraid when we had this idea, we were kind of afraid people wouldn't get it and they would want, you know, all their food on one plate or they wouldn't want to share. But I have to say, and we opened in 2002, you know, the, the first one, the yeah, first yeah. one. Yeah. And just the LA dining public was so open to the idea. I mean, we had this long skinny menu, the format of the menu has changed. The, the content is pretty much the same, but the format we had, it was like three skinny pages. And the first page was cheese, was all cheese. Because what I wanted to do, I love cheese. And for me, no offense to the French, but the, you know, the, the, the traditional way you do it, I'm usually too full for cheese after I've had my meal. So I found that my husband and I at home, a lot of times we would have for dinner, we would have cheese and then we would make a big salad and that was our, that would be our dinner. So I wanted people to have the cheese while they were hungry, you know? So we just put it on the first page and when people came in, we just said, Hey, so try, why don't you try this? And people went for it, which was so fantastic and amazing. Yeah. And it's funny, actually, that I wrote the original menu. I wrote it on a plane and I always joke that I do my best work on an airplane because I, you know, have nobody talking to me or bugging me. Yep. I can just do my thing. I understand. <laughs> and I had all these lists of dishes that I wanted to make. And I was thinking, so, and they were all gonna, the idea of them being small was so that you could order multiple of them. You know, you wouldn't be committed to one big plate. So I was sitting there and I had, I had all the menu ideas. It was getting pretty close to when we were opening. And I was like, okay, how am I going to organize this? And I just organized it for myself by putting like salad, fish, meat, And then for vegetable, I put like and other things or something like that. And I just organized it like that to try to figure out what I was going to do. And then once I did that, I was like, oh, I actually kind of like it this way. And so that was how it stayed. Yeah, the, the content involved in the sections, because now you have a, a, a wood fire grill, you know, like oven, I think, correct? Yes. Like yeah, we a have section both. Wood fire, yeah. mm -hmm. wood fire grill and wood fired oven. Uh, and it's definitely, you know, like anything grown and developed and changed over over the years. But I would say the heart and soul of it is still the same. I mean, we, we changed locations and we were at that one spot until 2013. So 10 years. And it was just further east on Third Street. And then uh, we the, the building where we're located now is just this. I love this building so much. I've loved it basically. My, I, mean, I grew up in LA. I've loved that building my whole life. I used to go to Orso when it was Orso. And it just something about it feels very transporting. And so it became available. We were actually planning on doing renovation, a 10-year renovation at the old AOC. And uh, that spot came up and we were like, oh my God. We had, it was like we moved to our grown-up house. You know, like that was our starter house. We moved <laughs> to our grown-up house. And they're never, you have to drag us out kicking and screaming because we, we just love that spot. I don't know if you, did you go up and see the wine room? Did you see our private dining room? No. No, no, I did not. Next time. Yeah, next time we have two patios and then we also have a this beautiful sort of wood uh, wine room that looks out onto the other, to the pat our Eastern patio. So feels like a home kind of, yeah.
So, I mean, going back to your uh, comments about, uh, you know, the cheese and, and the French, and I think it's it's great because you, you mentioned the fact that you and your husband, you know, and your family, you have some time like dinner, you have cheese and a salad. I had this the same thing. I do the same thing. My parents did the same thing as well. The only funny piece is that when I have some French family coming over and we go to a restaurant and they see cheese, you know, in the menu to be served first, they are mm. like, oh, yeah. really, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> That's a revolution crazy for them. Americans. <laughs> <laughs> That's a revolution. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have that freedom. You know, I think we have that being, especially maybe on the West Coast. I don't know. We're just kind of people are very free to do what they feel like doing. Yeah, absolutely. So one of my favorite dish that, uh, you know, I had twice because I, I love it so much the first time is your Arroz Negro with the squid and, you know, the saffron aioli. What was your inspiration behind being that dish? Do you remember? I do remember. Yeah, it was, you know, at Luke, it was much more our original restaurant was uh, much more French influenced, country French. And I worked at Chez Panisse for two years. So we, that's for sort of that California produce. I was focused on the produce. So when we were opening AOC, I just wanted to explore something different. So we were, you know, exploring wines and cheese, but I also really wanted to spend more time thinking about Spanish food and sort of things from dishes from the like Iberian Peninsula. And uh, it's funny, I had actually gone, I was invited on a trip by the foods and wine of Spain back in the day when they did those kind of trips. It was a chef, a chef trip. They invited six chefs and they took us all around Spain. And I just remember having these, you know, these rice dishes, you know, I more, it was more of a paella, but I wanted to kind of take that idea of the paella and, and do something a little different. So yeah. And, and you serve it in the, in a cast iron, correct? Yeah. Uh, we cook them to order. We cook them to order in, in the cast iron with the squid ink. Mirepoix, squid ink, and yeah, finish it with the saffron. And I, what I love is, especially is like the whole crust, you know, like on the edge, you yes. know, of the, the castaron. This is so good. That's, yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's, the plan. that's all that's, about getting it yeah, to that right spot in yeah. the oven and making sure you get yeah. that. Um, yes, like, I love that crispiness too. And then the tender underneath. And we used to laugh when we first opened because people love that dish. And you'd see everybody would be leaving and they'd be walking out. Everyone had black teeth. <laughs> people say goodnight everyone has black teeth that's funny okay <laughs> I, mean, so I, have, not only... I haven't noticed <laughs> yeah be careful next time <laughs> <laughs> that's funny mm -hmm. the cocktails were amazing uh, you know as well so how are you involved in in the cocktail program at AOC well very involved I mean uh, Carol and I are involved in everything it's our it's our baby so we're involved in everything but we actually have a uh, we call him our, our head barman I actually hate that term mixologist so we sort of steer away from okay. it, but uh, it's actually... Why do, why, why, do you, why do you hate it? Sorry, I I'll just sidebar. I don't know. It's, um, I don't know. All, I don't know. It sounds too scientific. Or, I don't or know, what scientific, or, yeah. Yeah, it feels like, I don't know. It feels, it feels, or like an exaggeration of what it actually is. Like we're making cocktails. We're not... I don't know what sure. mixology but It's my own personal weird. I think I mean, some people said like, you know, mixologists are... Like, you know, like chef, you know, compared to cook, like meteorologists compared to bartenders. That's maybe the way how they talk about it. So. Yeah. Well, we actually have a bartender who, or a mixologist who we worked with for years, but we had, it was the original head barman. His name is Christian Rolich. And he, he did it. He actually did a cookbook or a, a book, a bar book, and it's called Bar Chef. Because that was sort of the idea of where our cocktail program came from, was taking the same ideas that we use in the kitchen. So this, we're using the same products, exploring seasonal ingredients, really highlighting the produce without over manipulating, but kind of highlighting it. And he actually, it's funny, he started out just as a bartender with us, but he would come back in the kitchen and always be asking me like what I was, what I was doing and poking around and then try to take some of those ideas and apply them to cocktails. And the gentleman who's working with us now, whose name is um, Mario, he is, he's been kind of taking on the same 
same approach. And we know we really work together talking about what's in season. He goes to the farmer's market. And now he's, you know, for a while it was, I was training those guys and now they just totally surpassed me. I mean, they're doing all these, you know, beautiful syrups and bitters. And I love what I love about our cocktails, which is something that I hope people feel from the food is they're very layered in their flavors and they have nice texture. They have texture to them. I think there's a little bit of a trend now with everything being really overstrained, you know, just try to get things to be really clear and almost focusing on the color. And I think our drinks have beautiful color and they're beautiful to look at. But for me, that texture is something, it's funny, it's something I love in wine too and something I love in food. So it makes sense that it's something we love in the cocktails. Do, do they use as well some byproduct from, from the kitchen uh, as well in the, in the creation of the cocktails? Or? Not usually. I mean, sometimes they, they're definitely doing their own. I mean, they work, are cocktail, we sell a lot of cocktails, so they're very busy and they have to do a lot of their, you know, they do all their own prep sort of step next to us, but separate from us. So I think it would almost just, it was more like we're so busy, it would be kind of complicated to be trying to share. But there's definitely times where, you know, we'll make something for pastry maybe and say, and there's a syrup left over and we say, Hey, why don't you try, why don't you try this? It was a blackberry syrup from something we were doing in the summer and Maria fell in love with it, made a drink with it. And then he started making that blackberry syrup. So I guess it does work. It. it does work that way. Okay. Or there's okay. also, we were doing some pickled beets and at one point they really loved the pickled beets and started playing around with the beet juice and making a drink from the beet juice. And there's definitely a lot of crossover. Because for me, it's the same thing like with pastry. I mean, you want it all to come together in a whole, you know, you don't want it to feel like the pastries are separate from the savory food or separate from the cocktails. It should all be one cohesive whole. Sure. Obviously you have as well, you know, the, the concepts of the lot, the larder baking company. So, so you are making there like the, you know, like the artisan brand and pastry current. So where, where, where's that passion for bread and pastry comes from? I mean, I, I love food. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love food. I love to eat. I love, so obviously for me, bake, you know, cheese, pastries, baked bread is all, it's all one of, part of the whole, but it's, it's interesting how things with us tend to happen very organically. There's no sort of master plan of what we're going to do. And the bakery actually came from when we were at that original AOC, we had this little wood oven and we, we really couldn't find any great bread that we really loved. And so we started, actually I had a host <laughs> who, was baking bread at home and he kept bringing this bread in from home for me to taste it. And at first it was kind of like, and I would just kind of give him tips. Oh, I think it should be this. I think it should be that. It started to get pretty good. And I said to him, do you want to come try baking it? Like come try baking it in the wood oven. And he did. And it was delicious. And we got kind of hooked to have, you know, into having this bread and we ended up, he turns out he did not want to be a baker. He wanted to be a you know, movie star or something, but he kind of got me, he got us started on this idea. Then we actually went out and found a baker and started baking the bread for AOC at AOC. And then I wanted to have it at Luke too. So we pushed and we were doing it at both places. And then when we opened our third restaurant, which is now AOC Brentwood, but was at the time called, when we opened, it was called Tavern. And we had a very ambitious program there. We had a whole, the larder, which was the prepared food to go. And we had a bakery. We put in a beautiful Bongard oven and we were baking all the bread and pastry there. And then originally we were just doing it for our three restaurants. And then we had a lot of requests and people were, people would sell, we sell at retail and then we had a lot of restaurants that wanted to buy it. And so it started to, that business started to grow out of Tavern and it was just outgrowing the space really. So that's when we actually got the space in, it's a funny location. It's National and Robertson. We're literally underneath the 10 freeway. Like the 10 freeway is our roof. 
if you ever drive by that intersection, you will smell, you can, the whole intersection smells like baking bread. No, what I, what I was saying is that why I was asking that question about where the, the passion for pastry and, and bread came from, because I remember, so I've been in the U.S. for about 20 years, and obviously the market for artisan bread is much different but like than 20 years ago. When I arrived 20 years ago, it was not that easy to find, you know, like especially coming for me coming from France, that was like a, a, something that I, you know, I missed a lot. So I was just curious about because, again, 2013, it's, you know, several years back. So it was interesting for me to hear what, where the passion was coming from. It's funny, my first job actually was in the pastry kitchen at Ma Maison on Melrose. That was my first job. But I, my dad was a total Francophile and he loved to cook and he loved food. And so it was always kind of a part of my upbringing. Okay, upbringing. And I okay. remember, do you remember Michel Richard, the bakery? Yeah, sure, sure. Yes. I mean, I remember going to that bakery. That was like my, that was like for my birthday. My dad would take me there and I would get this. They would do those breads that look like frogs. They would do like a frog, you know, different characters of bread, but yeah, delish, yeah, yeah, yeah. delicious. It's just like French bread. And I, <laughs> that was like yeah, my birthday sure. present. <laughs> Very good. I have, I have a similar memory. My, my, my parents passed away, but when I was a kid, my dad used to, after church on Sunday, it used to um, drive me before going back home to uh, the boulangerie, obviously. And uh, we were always like buying fresh breads and croissants. And that was our little pleasure is to eat like a croissant, you know, in the car <laughs> driving oh, yeah, back right? home. So yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's a restaurant in in New York City that reminds me a little bit of what you are doing at AOC in LA. I don't know if you know uh, the place called Loring Place by Chef Don Kluger in uh, in Manhattan. I don't. It's very like uh, veggie forward center of the plate with like bold flavors and working with you know local farmers as okay. well. And I'm just curious about how would you compare the, the the cooking style between like New York and and Los Angeles. It's funny, you know, I haven't been to New York in, well, thanks to the pandemic. I haven't been in oh, yeah, sure. like 2018, maybe, I think was the last time I was there. As what tends to happen with the West Coast is that I think New York has been very influenced by that California veggie-centric, you know, focus. It's funny, I but we I used to go to New York a lot when we, like in the first, when we first opened, like the first 10 years when we were open. And I remember whenever I would, I would always come home and be like, oh my God, I need a salad. Because you go to these restaurants and the food would be delicious, but everything was sort of rich and not a lot of vegetables and not a lot of salads. Like sort of like salads didn't belong in a nice restaurant. You know, it was that was something too casual. So I think that has really, 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 really changed a lot. I mean, and again, I don't know enough because I haven't I haven't been in such a long time. You know, I think one thing for L.A. is we have I think there's such an openness to people cooking what they feel like cooking, you know, an opening opening restaurants that are, you know, have a very narrow focus, but on something that, that the chef or the owner is very passionate about, whatever the size may be, you know, the size may be, or whatever your, fo your focus may be, or your level of experience. It's like, it's all, it's a little bit of a free for all now, which is, which is great. Have you ever been tempted to open a location in the, uh, on East coast, like New York or Washington DC or? No, no, I am such, I'm a control freak. So for me, it's even, I mean, it's hard having, <laughs> yeah, it's far, it's yeah. hard. It's just, hard, it's hard having places. You know, I have, at this point we have, you know, we opened a hotel downtown. So I have the hotel restaurants and then I have one in Brentwood and I have one in West Hollywood. And then pretty soon we'll have the Hollywood bowl going. So like that, that's a lot. And, and if I couldn't, you know, if I just couldn't just be somewhere in half an hour, I think it would be, It'd be really hard. I mean, it would have to be something where I had an entire team who I'd worked with that, you know, like if the whole crew from AOC decided they wanted to move, all wanted to move to New York and we had picked up and moved, like maybe, 
but otherwise it feels too, it's just too hard to manage and keep a, you know. Yeah, I, I get that. Okay. So you just mentioned that, you know, the, the two new places that you have at the, the down at downtown LA, uh, the Prosper Hotel. So one is called Cara Cara, correct? That's cl- focused on global coastal cuisine. And then the other one is uh, Caldo Verde, which yes. is have like Spanish and, and Portuguese influence. So can you t- again talk to us a little bit about those two concepts? Well, the hotel is beautiful. It's the downtown LA Prosper Hotel. It's a building from 1927. It was a YMCA. It was a private club. It's just, I, and I love, you know, I grew up here and I feel like forever people would say that downtown was going to, it was going to have, it was going to come back. They were going to, it was really going to happen. And then it sort of would never happen. And I actually feel like right before the pandemic, it really, it really did happen. Um, and then I think the pandemic was rough on downtown, like it was rough on everywhere, but there is like a whole vibrant, the vibrancy down there, especially in that South Park area, which is where we are. But I just, I love, I will say like, I feel like I should have been born in the thirties or something. because I love that. I just love that style. I love the old architecture. And so when we went to go, you know, went to first go see it, it was really run down. It's like seven years ago. It was really run down, but you could see that just the, it's actually was great that it was run down because it meant that nobody had come along and messed it up along the way, like in the seventies or the eighties. But for me, when I walked into the the lobby space, which was to be the dining room of Caldo Verde, it just felt very, it felt very sort of moody and a little dark and just felt, it felt otherworldly in a good way. I felt like I wasn't, I was definitely somewhere else. And um, that mood of downtown, you know, that's just whether it's the history, the tradition, the older buildings, like all the marquees, it just kind of really spoke to me. And I, I'm, it's funny because originally for the inspiration was I wanted to kind of connect with what people were doing down there when it opened. Like what would that, what would they be serving? What was the food and what were people eating? You know, and I did some research and basically it was a lot of continental cuisine, which was not what I wanted to do. So then I kind of asked myself, okay, well, what, what was I hoping that I would find? What did I want to find? Because I was sort of thinking, I don't know, either immigrants and what are they cooking in their homes? And, and I've always loved Portuguese food. I actually, oddly, I spent 10 years on the East Coast and in France, and I worked for two different Portuguese guys, one chef and one owner. And I worked in Rhode Island. So Rhode Island has a big Portuguese community. And so I ended up actually getting to know a lot of Portuguese people and an idea of Portuguese culture and cuisine without ever really actually going to Portugal, Portugal. But I just love, it's a very sort of humble joie de vivre, like very bold, full flavors. All the things that I, you know, kind of, I love to eat like sausages and kale and potatoes and lots of seafood. And so that's why I just had that idea. I think, you know, because I've had my own restaurants for long enough that like the, the idea of like, you can cook whatever you want. I already have that, you know? So this is, it's nice for me to have a direction uh, to go. And so then actually Carol and I went on a trip to Portugal in 2019, which was amazing. And saw, you know, went to Lisbon and Porto and the Douro Valley and, um, you know, saw the food from a different perspective, I think, because it's funny, I was seeing it almost like a second generation perspective in Rhode Island. So, and it's funny because there's such a, they have the same respect for local ingredients. You know, it's all about, they're really, it's all about the seafood because they have so much coastline and access to so many beautiful so much beautiful product. And so I kind of wanted to bring that spirit. It's sort of what we already do, but kind of in a, even more, and then just explore all those Portuguese flavors and traditional foods and, and then just put my own spin on it. It's definitely, it's not a Portuguese restaurant. Is there anything specific that's inspired you over there? Like any like specific dishes? Not really, actually. It was more sort of the whole overall vibe and flavor profile and 
sort of this, like I said, this like robust, but humility and definitely the cheeses. Like we have a great selection of Portuguese cheese. There's amazing, you know, these, all these little um, purveyors and artisans, you know, we get this tomato jam that we serve with our cheese. That's, you know, made by a little old lady with copper pots in some town in Portugal, which I love those stories. We do have a, we do have serve a caldo verde, you know, which traditionally caldo verde is a very humble peasant soup. It was funny. We were trying to find it in, in Portugal and no, it was not in any restaurants. And we were kept asking people and they're like, oh no, that you have that at home. That's something like your grandma makes when you don't feel well. You know, it's just a soup with a pota- potato, kale, and linguiça. Those are the three ingredients. So I kind of wanted to take, you know, a little Southern California spin on it. And we decided to, I made it with this, these local rat, rock crabs. So we get these rock crabs from Santa Barbara, make a really, really rich broth. And then there's also a little tomato, a little bit of saffron in there. And, and then we have Alex Weiser's fingerling potatoes. We have kale the linguisa, and then, you know, more of that crab meat in there. We serve it with a big grilled toast and blistered cherry tomatoes. It's delicious. And it's, I love what I love. I love it because we serve, it's for two, at least it could be for more. And we serve it in this beautiful stone bowl and with a ladle. And it's kind of that, to me, that's a lot of the spirit of, you know, passing something around the table that I love from there. And then you have Caracara, which is on the, the rooftop. Correct? Yeah, Caracara mm-hmm. is on the rooftop. And it's funny, the, the for me, I, it's the food that I would want to eat on a rooftop. You know, it's you're outside. There's a we have a wood burning oven up there too, so we have little focaccias and arroz con mariscos from the wood oven. We have you know lots of big salads and grilled fish. We have tacos. The same focaccia that uh, that you have in AOC? Yes, or similar. It's like a diff- okay. Yeah, they're similar. similar. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were talking about like Lucas before that. Obviously, it's cl- you know it's closed now. So what was the reason for you guys to just like? close the story on, I think it was more than 20 years, correct? And yeah, it, I, was, I don't think it was connected to the pandemic, correct? It was... It was right before the pandemic. It was right, it was before, right the pandemic, before the yeah. pandemic. Yeah, it was, yeah, it had been 22 years. Just, we had somebody actually make an offer that we, it wasn't really on the market. And we just, it was a lot, you know, it's a lot to just keep so many places going. And I thought, I think we sort of felt, you know, go out on a high note. You know, we had just celebrated our 20th anniversary. And um, in the end, like hindsight, that was like the luckiest. It's a great business decision. Oh yes, my God. Right. It was the greatest Absolutely. thing we ever did as much. It was, it was funny for, for like five days, I was heartbroken. And then for after that, I was like, oh, so relieved. Like, thank, thank God that we just got that. It was, you know, it was hard enough going through it with, you know, we had to deal with the whole pandemic with for two places, but I think a third, you know, would have been, Yeah. <laughs> So today, so can I ask you the question, what brings you joy in your job? In my job? Well, I, I still, I really love cooking. I mean, it's funny that it sounds silly, but that's the cooking is the really fun part. I love the cooking. I also love the, I just love the camaraderie. I love, you know, working with people who I like. I love the, I like the adrenaline. I love, I still like a crazy Saturday night Just still, I love that, like the rush and everybody working together really hard. And then, you know, sort of surviving in the end, it's like warriors that have, We've made it through to the other side together. I love I love making customers happy. It's it's funny that it's still to this day, it's like when somebody tells me they had a great meal or they really loved it or, you know, we always go back for our birthday or whatever it may be. It's just, it's really rewarding. So it's funny. I feel like a lot of people when they'll come and ask me advice about that they want to be a chef or they think they want to help in a restaurant. And for, I usually try to talk people out of it. Just say like, why don't you just cook at home and, <laughs> and enjoy, enjoy your life? Yeah. But I think uh-huh. for me, it's like, I need to be in the restaurant business because I love, I love all those sides of it. Like I love the, I love the cooking, but it's different than just cooking by myself in my house. Like I love the cooking together. I love creating something and I love the, 
I love, I sadly, I love the madness, you know, it's like a sickness. We always joke. It's like a sickness, you know, if you, but, like a if, drug. but if you have it, if, <laughs> yeah, so an if, addiction. if you yeah. have that addiction, it's really hard to find it yeah. with, with something else. So I still find a lot of joy in it. I mean, the hard parts are right now, I think is you know, staffing is really, really hard and being understaffed, like chronically understaffed is just, it's just, it's brutal because people are, I'm working super hard. Everyone around me is working super hard. You're trying to keep people motivated. It's like, and it's not for lack of trying, you know, to, to get people. It's getting a little, I think it's getting better now. It feels like it's getting a little better, but I think we lost a lot of people to the industry. I mean, a lot of people left the industry and a lot of people True. left. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of other chefs, you know, told the same thing. Yeah. People left the area. So. I mean, so it's a hard business, you know, it's, it's, a, really hard, it's yeah. a hard, yeah, it is definitely. It is. So who are your mentors and, and what did you learn from them? Alice Waters, but sort of Alice Waters and the whole crew at Chez Panisse. You know, it's like Chez Panisse is, Alice is amazing. And then it's like, but a lot of the people, she has so many great people who work there. I had a, I worked under a chef named Catherine Brandel, who sadly passed away, but she was at Chez Panisse and David Tannis, who's now at the Hammer Museum and at Lulu and uh, Peggy Smith. These were all at Chez Panisse, who Peggy now has Calgary Creamery up north. But I, I think working with that group of people was was really, really changed things a lot for me. It was really influential. Just, I mean, it's the, the love of the produce, the love of the market. You know, we change the menu every day. So I think that learning to work with work with what you have and be inspired by limited ingredients and figure, figuring things out. I think I learned a lot of that there. Uh, actually, early on, I, I worked at a place called Al Forno in Providence for a to George Germone and Joanne Colleen. I learned a, a, t a ton from them. They were the ones who, like I told you, my dad was really a Francophile. So they were the ones who turned me on to Italian, you know, Italian food and kind of more sort of really fresh ingredient focused. We used to drive to Little Compton, which was 45 minutes from Providence and to, just to get tomatoes, we would drive down and get tomatoes and then and drive back. It was the first time I had a salad that was just tomatoes with vinegar, olive oil, salt and basil. You know, I, I just had never had that before. Was, and when the, the first time having it with really delicious tomatoes, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is. But it was a real ripe tomato. It was a real tomato. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so you said you're, you're learning how to cook, you know, with like a fresh produce. And obviously, you know, you establish, you know, connection with, you know, farmers and and you're using seasonal produce, how does it translate like in like practically on, you know, on, on the content on the menu and on, on the, on the day-to-day -day basis? Oh, it affects us a lot day-to-day. -day. I mean, we know, we know all the farmers, we know what they're growing. We, you know, we'll, when they're growing something, we put that on the menu, but then what'll happen sometimes is they'll, you know, plow under a field by mistake or forget to tell us, or, you know, and that's all part of the, like, you know, we just have to, you just have to be really agile and, and ready to, to change. And it's hard because sometimes I'll be really in love with a dish and I don't want to let it go. But there's an ingredient that's, you know, if it's when that season's over, that season's over. And I just have to kind of move on and remember that it, that it will be back. But are you building those dishes in a way that you can rotate some ingredients with like, you know, other varieties or like, you know, and that comes into peak of the season, for instance? Or? Sometimes, sometimes I do. I try not to, to fall back on that. I try to push myself to do something different oh, like when something new to comes create to, to, based just to, on yeah. what's what's as opposed because it's but it's hard sometimes if there's a dish that people really love and that i really like you know there's a temptation to kind of just swap out some ingredient you know swap the ingredients out and i'm sure it will be good but i try to kind of push myself to do something different and maybe like when we when that come the ingredient comes back around next year that's when we can you know do that dish again but 
And when you work with, you know, those farmers, uh, do you sometimes ask them as well to plan something specific for you? Yes, absolutely. And they actually, they love, they love doing that. They love um, growing specially. And then it's also great for, you know, sometimes for us, like arugula, for example, I, I love arugula. And sometimes parts of the season, it's hard to find the arugula that I really like. Like I like it kind of big and spicy and not like kind of flappy and when then, like not the stuff you get in the supermarket, like not, that's not really arugula, like that, like the really hearty stuff. And then sometimes there'll be certain dishes where we want it a little smaller. So we just, we've been talking to, you know, we, we have a farm that we work with all the time called Shaner Farms uh, down in North San Diego County. And so we'll just talk to them and say, you know, this is, this is my estimate of what we're going to be using. And can you grow it for us? And can you cut it at this size? You know, cause then we'll be able to fill that niche instead of us running around searching for it all the time. It's nice. It's good for them because then they know they're, they're growing something and they have a market for it. And it's great for us because we know we have a source for something that we are always looking for. Alex Weiser is another one. He loves to, like, he wants to know what we, what do we want him to grow for us? And he loves to play around with different, I don't know if you know the seed company called Rose Seven. It's actually Dan, Dan Barber has been working with them to, to kind of create these seeds that are actually where the flavor is very intense and the scale of the produce is easy for farmers to grow. So they do little like honey nut, these little honey nut squash that are almost like a little mini butternut, but it's super flavorful. It grows, it grows quickly. So it's easier for farmers to handle. And they also, they, I think that way they also, it grows more quickly. So they have less time, you know, if they sell it for the same amount, they have less, they're making more money because they don't have the field taken up with this squash for for longer. So he loves playing around. Alex loves playing around with all the different things that uh, they're growing. And we kind of give him his, give him the feedback or, Hey, we love this one. Can you plant more? What would be your advice for like a, maybe like a chef that wants to connect with, you know, farmers and, and, and work with farmers? What would be like for you, like the top three things, you know, that you can suggest them to do or think about? I mean, I think the first thing to do is to get to the market and introduce yourself and get to know the the players. I mean, I think if, you know, we have, for example, David Tanis, you know, my chef that I worked for at Chez Panisse, he, they opened a restaurant called Lulu at the Hammer. And so when they, when he first came down, he was like, can you take me around the market and introduce me to everybody? So I think if you have a connection to use the connection, but I think when we, that the way we first started was just going to the market, you, you know, you go every Wednesday and you start to know the farmers and just ask, ask them questions, you know, ask them questions about what they're growing buy some things, come taste, you know, taste them. And then, you know, you can also talk about things that you wish they were growing or, you know, do you know anybody who has this? I had a funny experience with Shaner Farm when I was telling you before, where I used to have a joke that every time I wanted something, I would ask Peter, you don't know anybody who has eggs, do you? Oh, actually my brother, my brother has chickens. They have it. Do you want me to bring some? Like, yes. Um, I'm looking for, I was looking for suckling pig for a special event we were doing. Oh yeah. Oh, my brother's a butcher. I mean, my brother, my brother's a rancher. Do you want to get suckling pig from him? Yes. I want to get suckling pig for him. So I was, I was looking for a kumquat tree for my house. Peter, you don't have a kumquat tree. Do you actually, we do have kumquat trees. I was like, okay. So Peter's a magical farmer with, with everything. (laughs) But I think if you, you know, that's how you do it is you just, you know, go there and then, and then start developing the, the relationships of, but the best way to do it really is it's, I mean, it's great. The farm comes to you. So that's pretty, that's pretty magical. Very cool. So when I met you several months back, you, you were being awarded by uh, star chefs, Los Angeles, like rising star as a, the mentor for 2021. So, so beside obviously skills, you know, what value do you transmit to, to your mentees? 
It's, actually, it's funny actually that you bring up the mentoring because I would say that's the other, when you asked me a little bit back about what brings me joy, I would say that's definitely another part of the job that brings me joy. There's a lot of, th- there's a lot of frustrations in the business, but I think when you feel like there's somebody who you've helped to develop and rise up and figure things out, that's a really rewarding feeling. What else am I telling them besides? Yeah, like besides the skills, yeah. like, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> which is an important part. It's a very important part. No, but I, I, yes. I would say that the, the, how you manage people and communication are also like equally important because you have to, and I think the leadership is, it's really a balance of sort of tough love and just being empathetic, but also being tough, which is a kind of hard thing for people to, it's a hard balance to strike sometimes. I feel like, you know, if I'm working with a pantry cook and if they keep making the same mistake over and over again, like for me, I'm, I mean, I'll, I will, I'll teach somebody till I'm blue in the face. And there's a certain point where like, if they're not getting it, it's hard to not get frustrated. Right. So it's, it's finding that way to kind of motivate people to teach them, but also kind of not let them, it doesn't mean it's a free for all just because you're nice, you know? So it's, it's because that's not good for them either. I, you know, it's, it's a little bit like with kids, like they, like people want discipline and structure. They want to know what they're supposed to be doing. And actually it's funny. We had a, we have a new, newish cook at Brentwood. I was working there the other night and he's very, super eager kid. He's really into it. He's always jumping over to the next station to learn something. And I went over to the station. It was like a mess. There's like stuff everywhere. He wasn't busy. It was like at the end that when things were slowing down, it was like, Hey, you know what? Like you did a really great job tonight and you got the food out and I appreciate you jumping around, but like, look at your station, you know, you have to, like, you, ha- you have to not want to work like this, you know? And I mean, the good thing was he, you know, he took it, he was a little embarrassed, but he took it really well. And then the next day when I went back, it was like, he had everything organized. So you have to be kind of nagging and ha- you have to hound people a little bit. But then for me, it's always, it's a great thing about building a good crew is like, which I've been lucky to do so far is like, once you, once you have a group of people who are all like-minded it's much more easier when a new person comes in, you kind of get that person into the, we all, we're all sort of training them into what the expectations are and how we work together because we work very much like a team. It's not like, this is my station. It's, it's, if, you're, if your station's not busy and the person next to you is busy, we're kind of all hands on deck. And once you have that culture, it's very, it's much easier to teach that culture to the person, the new person coming in. I think we had it from the, you know, at the hotel when we first opened, I have a, actually my chef and chef, my chef and sous chef from Luke are both there at Caldo Verde, which is amazing because we have that imprint, you know, already there. We already, we speak the same language. We know what we want, but when there's like the three of us, you know, actually, we have, actually the other sous chef is worked for my husband, worked at the Hungry Cat for nine years. So we just, between the four of us, we all were very. That's was, great because, you know, one of the things sometime you were talking about, like it's rewarding for you to see people grow. But I remember a conversation I had with uh, Chris Cosentino and says, you know, there's as well, uh, you know, the risk and it seems to be even faster now with the newer generation that those people, you know, leave and then suddenly, you know, you have like lack of, uh, you know, of, of skills and, and so on. So, but if part of the group that you have is you have the possibility to offer someone like a progression in their career and, and, you know, which is, so you, you keep that talent, you know, in the pool of, you know, of your group, which is great. Well, that's part of the reason for opening new things, to be honest with you, is just to, to find new opportunities for the people around us and, and yet yeah, to not lose them and have them stay with us and, and grow. Absolutely. 
So another question I wanted to ask you, uh, it's a part of like a discussion I had with someone that uh, we both know, Elizabeth Faulkner. And when I had her on the show, she said something very interesting and that was intriguing for me. She said that women chefs have a different cooking and managing style than men. So would you agree with her? And how does it translate if it's the case? It's funny. I think that's been something like a discussion over, you know, touchy, touchy subject discussion over the, over the years. And I think just like anything, I think there are, that's probably a cliche, but there's, you know, usually with a cliche or a stereotype, but there's usually like a, mm-hmm. a reason behind the stereotype. Some there's some yeah. truth behind it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Although I know some, some male chefs who are, I mean, I think that what you would say is probably women are a little more empathetic, but probably better with the communication and more understanding and clear about the way they manage a little more, I think, Probably the cliche, the stereotype would be that men are a little more arrogant and women are a little more down to earth and maybe a little more nurturing. Although that said, I have, I've worked with a lot of great people, men and women. So for example, like somebody like David Tanis or Javier Espinoza, who's my number, number one guy, you know, who works under me as our executive, executive or chef de cuisine of our group is they are equally that if you, that way that you would think, you know, whatever the cliche, the shit stereotype of the woman chef is like kind of more even keeled understanding they're very much like that too so and i and i know there are women who are screamers you know <laughs> and can be really <laughs> can really be brutal too but i'm sure that's what she's talking about is just like the way that you know that it's just a different approach so i understand from the leadership style but is it true as well from the way of cooking like or not from your point of view see it's funny i and maybe it's because i came up in that shapenese school and there were a lot of men in that shapenese school and I would say that's the school that she's talking about. That's a little, that's definitely a little more intuitive and cooking from the heart and with your, you know, a lot more with your hands and as opposed to technique and sous vide and following things to, to a more exacting point as opposed to feeling it a little bit more. I don't know if that's okay. what she's, I'm guessing. So less scientist and more from the heart? I would that's, say, you know, I would say, but okay. I know a lot of men who cook that way. So I actually, that's the part where, and I actually know a lot of women who cook the other way. So I don't know. I don't know about that one. I actually think it, I'm guessing it shows up a little bit more in the, in the leadership, uh, the management style uh, than it does necessarily in the cooking. Like if you think about Barbara Lynch or Dominic Cran, or like, I think they're very meticulous and rigorous. And, and I think, I mean, I'd like to think that I'm rigorous too, just in a different, I mean, I'm in a different, I'm not like, not, I'm going to ask Dominic Cran. I have, her, I have her neck. I have her next week, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see. see what she says. I always feel like sometimes, not always, but sometimes it feels like we're giving men the short end of the stick or we're lumping them all together. Whereas I think, this, yes, there's different schools, but I don't know. I know a lot of men who are in what we think of as more like the women's school. And I think there's a lot of women who are in the other schools. So I don't know. Thinking about like uh, overall your ways of working. And so what's your uh, main source of inspiration? Oh, sitting in a dark room by myself with the, for hours and hours and hours. Like, <laughs> really? Okay. Uh, well, yeah, actually. I mean, my inspirations are the market and the produce, and and I love sort of taking traditions and you know pulling from them or turning them on their head or you know doing them differently. I definitely, when I'm going to write a menu, that's what I have to do. I have to go like in my office at home. I can't do it at work, and it takes me a it takes me a while. I have a whole kind of process i have to procrastinate so you have a, you have a routine i have procrastinate for about two hours and then <laughs> and then i yeah and then i just i mean usually what i do is i start with what's available right now and then i i think it's funny i think after doing this 
for so long. Actually, a lot of times ideas come to me in the shower, which is bizarre. But I think after doing things, for, I kind of have a lot of stuff stored in my in my head. And it needs to, if I just, it, it kind of starts to, to roll out as I, if I just let myself get into that, into that zone. You have anything that uh, helps you to spark, like the, your imagination, like music or, um, you know, arts or whatever it is? No, for, for me, no. For me, it's actually silence, which I don't get very often. I also write when I'm doing it. I do a, you know, I can't, like, I don't do it on the computer. I do it just by hand. I start just kind of, and I like to, sometimes I just start listing, you know, flavors that I think will go together or ingredients that'll go together or ingredients and flavors. And sometimes it'll, it's, it has to build a little bit into a dish. So it'll be, you know, I'll write two things or then three things and then two things, three things. And then it starts to, then I kind of have to go back and, okay, which, what do I like best about what I what I'm thinking because there's coming, there's coming up with individual dishes and then there's putting a whole menu together that yeah, where everything works. Yeah. So, and it has to make sense. It has to yeah. all make sense. So sometimes that's the, you know, I'll come up with things that I like and there'll be a couple of things that are, there's an overlap or they're too similar or there's a, you know, and then I have to kind of choose and, or tweak something to make it work with the other, with the other dishes. So you said that you have a, do you have the process? So has your creative process like evolved over the years? Actually, it's very similar. It's very similar to what I've done from since I was like a line cook. Like when I was a line cook, I used to sit in the morning with coffee and but write like pretend restaurant menus. You know, it just kind of like if, like if I had a restaurant, this is what I would do. I'd make like different names for restaurants and write the menus for them. And but for me, I think it is that it's that solitary time. And then I actually do, and this part's newer, is that I also sit with Javier, who's my, you know, my chef de cuisine. And like after I've done that, and then he's kind of, he's thought of some stuff too. Sometimes we so come, a bit more collaborative. We'll sit together and, and do a little more collaborative. Yeah. He sometimes helps me with it when I can't decide if there's two dishes that I like, but we can only put one on. He'll help me like, sure. no, 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 let's do that one. I'm so gonna... is the creative process like, um, like becoming easier with time or, or more difficult? I think it's the same because I like to do things differently. You know, it, we use, the, as the seasons come around, there's always new ingredients, but there's a lot of the same ingredients. You know, it's like this time of year, we always have blood oranges. So it's, I like the challenge of, you know, doing, doing something different with them each time. So once you've done, you know, like 24 years of them, then it's like the next time you're like, okay, now what am I going to do? Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's funny, actually, we're about to do this dish at the hotel. And it's, you know, there's a, there's a classic Portuguese salad that's just oranges, red onion, and honey. And so I'm kind of playing around with actually doing more of like a honey vinegar, using a honey vinegar and doing a vinaigrette. And, you know, playing around with something like that. But I like to, like, for me, the honey is just too much, like the straight honey on there. But I like the idea. And then it's kind of fun to take that as a way to, to play around. Okay, what am I going to do for the onion component? How could I mix that up? And there, there's a that. lot of uh, hot honey, you know, mm -hmm. everywhere popping up, like in restaurants and as well, in like topping for pizzas. And, you know, that's interesting. A lot of things with I honey love honey, there. actually. I have a, I have yeah. a little hunt. Yeah. So for me, whenever somebody's traveling and they say, can I bring you something? It's like, yeah, bring me a jar of honey because I just, I love all the different, you know, the, the jars and the graphics. It's like, you get a, like a fun sense of. of a, a and place. there's so many different tastes. There's tastes, yeah. you know, based on the, you know, the, the different, you know, blossoms available around, you know, so that's cool. So when I have, you know, a chef on, uh, on the podcast, I always pick their brain as a suggestion for a home cook to prepare something, you know, at home. So it's not like a recipe, but it's more like kind of a guideline and having some thoughts. So what would be your suggestion for a home cook, like a food enthusiast like myself, like to prepare maybe let's say Brussels sprouts, because, you know, there's a lot 
at the moment. So what will be the Suzanne Gwen's like twists, you know, and style and Brussels sprouts? Well, I love Brussels sprouts. That's one of my, that's one of my favorite things. And actually I cook them a lot. And I do have a way that, way that I cook them that I really like, which is I sear them in a pretty hot pan, usually the smaller ones where you can cut them in half. And then usually do diced uh, shallot, garlic, little arbol chili, thyme, salt and pepper, and then actually a little splash of uh, balsamic vinegar. And then if you're feeling like we've done them with veal stock, if you want to make them a little richer. Oh, and pancetta, sorry. Either pancetta or chorizo, if you want to, you know, if you're good with the meat thing. And then just hit it with uh, a little, the, the vinegar, and then either a little stock, or you can just, or you can do a little bit of water and olive oil. And just let them kind of bla- glaze in the pan. And uh, I love them like that. I mean, I like them hot that way with a little, maybe a little breadcrumbs. But we're actually doing a salad at AOC right now, which is basically those, we, it's a vegetarian version. So it's without the pancetta, obviously. And we just cool them down. And then I toss them with a uh, treviso and a little more of the olive oil, uh, currants and pine nuts. And um, breadcrumbs, and we serve it with a little dollop of finishing the, the olive oils and the pine nuts and the breadcrumbs. Yeah, so you let them cool. The it's, all, it's, a, and it's basically yeah. like, a, it's like a Brussels okay. sprout salad. Yeah, um, got it. But they're good hot and they're good. They're good cold too. Very cool. Yeah, I'll try that. Yeah, they're good. Yeah, sounds good. You know, another if you if you do you go to the farmers markets? Oh yeah, There's, sure, absolutely. So another thing I'm kind of we're, actually my kids are obsessed with is if you go to if you go to two peas, you know two peas in a pod. They have um, these little. They're called kalets, and it's a cross between a Brussels sprout and a kale, but they're they're little. Okay, I haven't seen those. Oh, okay. So you have to go a little early. <laughs> I think, they, I think they sell. I think they sell out. Especially if I go, they sell out. We just toss them with olive oil, salt, and pepper, and I just roast them. And they kind of do a little bit like a kale chip thing, but they're you know meatier because it's not just the the kale sheets. Anyway, like my I, I always make those Sunday night after you know I get them at the Sunday market, and we never I, every every time I try to get enough that to last for the week, but they're just gone. So my kids eat them like a snack, but you could also do them. I've done them just with uh, at home, just with. You know, prosciutto and cheese and, and t- like grilled toast, like a little antipasto. You, They're really good. Something like a, a, a telegio or a telame, like something a little, something kind of a little, like a little soft. Yeah. Okay, chef. So I'm looking at the time and I, I just, I want to finish like the, uh, the discussion. I have a series of rapid fire questions. Okay. So if, you, wow. if you're okay with that. <laughs> so, so you and I are going on a tasting tour in, in LA. So what are like the five spots that you will take me to? Of course, beside AOC, so, yeah. and, you know, and, and your restaurants outside of the Lucas group. Wow. Okay. Well, I need, first of all, I need to get out more. So maybe you should probably be guiding me. Actually, a couple of places, I'll tell you places that I have not been that I want to go. Does that help? Okay, sure. Because, um, Absolutely. because honestly, I, I need to, I need to get out more. I really want to go to uh, Yang Bang Society down. They're all kind of downtown. Uh, Yang Bang Society that just opened downtown. Damian, also downtown. Okay. Yes, yes. Maybe I'll take you by Cara Cara for a drink just because we're exploring two new places <laughs> okay. and we can stop there and have a drink. Where else should we go? Oh, Spartina on Melrose. Have you been to Spartina? No, I haven't been there. No. Yeah, I love it. It's a it's beautiful outdoor patio, just, just delicious, kind of timeless food. And I also just feel really good whenever I'm eating there. Let's go yeah. see Josiah. It could be a right? bar. Could Should be. We go see okay. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I between between work and you know, I have, I have three kids, so my kids are 14, 14, 14, and thirteen. So if I am not at work, almost always at home. So, what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? I mean, well, well I love I love breakfast pastry. I mean, I love like pan au chocolat or like to have like the breakfast of like the. I stopped drinking coffee 
six, nine months ago or something like that, just because I, because I can't, because it just helped me with sleeping. So now it's like a decaf. It's my treat. It's like a decaf coffee and a, either a pan of chocolate. Actually, I love, we, we make a brand muffin. It's so funny. That's my guilty pleasure. Brand muffin <laughs> bakery. So what are my other guilty pleasure foods? I think I don't, I'm not a fast food person. So I'm not, I don't have that like, oh, I like. Craving like crave. a big mac. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. When I get home, if I'm really hungry, it's like pasta with olive oil and pecorino okay. on it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a. Get your pepe. Don't okay. ha- yeah. <laughs> don't have too much. Yeah. I love food too much to make it. Like I could never be like a big diet person. So I think that also helps take away the guilty pleasure thing. Cause if you sure. like the other night, at, I was at Brentwood the other night and I was leaving, I was, I was kind of hungry and I just like I had to make me a little three cheese plate and I came home and had a glass of wine and actually watched it, watched the Olympics with my husband, like it had my cheese and I, and that was, I guess that's a guilty pleasure. Well, I love everything. I love, I love, Sp- I love a uh, sheep's milk cheese, particularly like all of this, this kind of a Spanish and Portuguese that are kind of stinky, like the Sarah de Estrella type cheese. We just got a cheese from the, the Azores. It's called Ilha. De Mysterios. And it's funny, our, our GM is French and uh, I had him taste it and he, he actually thought it was, he thought it was French. It had that sort of, you know, that, <laughs> of um, course. yeah, he's like, this is so good. Maybe it must yes, be French. Are. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> um, I love blues too. I mean, I just, I just love, I, I love cheese. I love, and I like with all food, I, I, I love the, I love the story. So like knowing who the producers are and, but yet definitely that cheese is a guilty, is definitely, I don't know, I guess I, maybe, maybe I should feel guilty, but I don't. Maybe that's, no, my, me maybe, maybe that's yeah, my problem. That's, with a very, very nice piece of bread. Yes, yes exactly. Or some crackers, sometimes yeah. like nice uh, artisan crackers. It's good too. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? Probably Julia Child, The Art of French Cooking. Not in that, I didn't ever read the book so much, but my mom, that was like my mom's Bible. So I basically grew up eating that food, which which influenced me a lot. I mean, how I, you know, it's funny. I remember some one time it was like, well, when your mom made meatloaf, I'm like, no, my mom never made meatloaf. Like I don't, don't. (laughs) I was very lucky. I had lots of like really delicious food growing up. And then uh, Eric Repair's book. And I'm trying to think what the the name is, is escaping me right now, but it's the one where he goes to four places in four seasons. Okay. I have to look it up. I don't know. yeah, I love, it I, it's, I, it's one of my favorite books. It's, it's, he goes to four different places in four different seasons and he just cooks, you know, not, in the, not at the restaurant. He's cooking with whatever he finds locally. And I think my favorite thing about that book is there's a moment where he, well, first of all, there's a moment where he makes something and it doesn't work. And he actually tells you that, which is like, as a young cook was just like, Oh my God, Eric Repair made something that didn't work. And then he also has this moment where he's tempted to like call New York and have them FedEx him whatever it is he wants. And he, you know, he's just works with, with what's there. And that's a, that's a beautiful book. And then probably Paula Wolfert's World of Food. I love all of her. I love all of her Southwestern, the cooking of Southwestern France is amazing, but that World of Food is the most, it's a really eclectic connection, collection of books. It has some Moroccan stuff and some French stuff. It's so personal and, and from the heart. I feel like it's literally her book of food that she loves. And I've cooked, I think I probably cooked almost everything out of that, out of that book is, and um, over, I mean, over many years, I think I, I think I got it when I was a teenager, but I, yeah, I love that book. So my last questions, what's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? My biggest pet peeves, talking back when somebody talks back is a huge one. That's a big one. Not seasoning when people don't season the food. I actually don't like music in the kitchen. I like music in the kitchen at home, but I don't like music in the kitchen at, at work. And uh, I guess that messy station, like that poor guy the other night. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot, unfortunately. That's a lot of pet peeves. Uh, I'm, sure everybody, I'm sure everybody who works with me can tell you all of them because I'm like, oh no, here she comes. <laughs> oh, okay. The talking back's a big one. Okay. 
Very cool, Chef. Thank you so much. Uh, you have been very generous f- uh, with your time, oh, so I pleasure. really appreciate it. So thank you for um, being on uh, on Flavors Unknown. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about Chef Suzanne Gouin, you can go to lucasgroup.com and follow her on her Instagram at Suzanne Gouin. We have put all this information and more on the episode show notes at flavorsunknown.com. If you like this episode, I am going to ask you for one favor. This is the same one I ask at the end of each episode. Please find one person, a colleague, a friend, a family member. Let them know that you are listening to the Flavors Unknown podcast. So do me a favor, please share it with one person today. Thank you. Next time, my guest will be Chef Matt Conroy, from Lutes in Washington, D.C. I first met Chef Conroy in Manhattan, where he was the chef at Virginia's in the East Village. Then he went to Oxomoco in Brooklyn, and now he is at Lutes in Washington, D.C. I see you in two weeks, and until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.